Well, hello, this is Nurse Keith. While I'm working on creating amazing new interviews and podcast episodes for you, let's jump into the Wayback Machine and listen to the September 2020 appearance of the incredible Teresa Brown, the totally inspiring New York Times nurse columnist and best-selling author. Enjoy this Best of Nurse Keith encore episode of The Nurse Keith Show. Of course, administrators have their own different formula with KVIs, key volume indicators, and FTEs, full-time employees. My eyes glaze over when I try to understand healthcare economics from a manager's point of view. I say, put the patient at the center and figure out the money from there. Teresa Brown is a New York Times columnist and well-known nurse thought leader, and we're here to discuss the state of nursing, COVID-19, and anything else that comes to mind during this episode of The Nurse Keith Show. Thanks for being here, and this is episode 286. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith, and welcome to The Nurse Keith Show. In these days of COVID-19, we're disseminating as much high-quality, evidence-based information and expert opinion as we can in our special COVID-19 episodes. Meanwhile, we still want to support you in your nursing career and personal development and discuss all sorts of issues that you care about. This episode is a far-ranging conversation with Teresa Brown, and we hope you can glean a great deal from it. So welcome and thanks for being here. The show notes for this episode will be at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 286. So Teresa, thank you so much for being here. You and I haven't talked for many, many years, and I really appreciate you taking the time. And we'll get to your bio by and by, but I wanted to just jump right in with you and mention that you wrote a book called The Shift, One Nurse, 12 Hours, Four Patient Lives, and it was a New York Times bestseller. So what is one of the takeaways for you from the process of writing that book? Because I think it's a really seminal book in nursing in many, many ways. Oh, thank you so much. And thanks for having me. I've My pleasure. You know, this is one advantage of Twitter as I've been able to follow your career and enjoyed it. So it's oh, thank you. to be here. I'm honored you would do so. (laughs) The takeaway really from the book and the inspiration from the book was the realization that as a nurse, all you have is your shift. If you're a hospital nurse, if you're a home care nurse, that's all you have. You know, um, I'm not going to be, I'm not the surgeon who's going to do the surgery and then maybe see the patient in the hospital in the morning for the next four days as they get better before they go home. Right. Just have my 12, which ends up being 13 hours. And yeah, I really wanted to get across how rich that is. And it's interesting, when I first told my agent I had this idea for a book of having it be one shift, she said, I just don't think there's going to be enough there. And I, I, Your agent didn't know very much, did he or she? And I love it when I tell that story to nurses because everyone like very politely laughs and thinks, oh, that's so cute. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> what could you possibly do in 12 hours, Teresa? And then I wrote madly. And I love my agent. She's a wonderful, wonderful person um, as, as well as a good agent. But I wrote madly and because I said, well, let me try and show you. And then I sent off to her this 
you know, very, very rough draft of an idea. And she said, you know what? You surprised me. I didn't know. And, and, and throughout working on the book, she said things like, I had no idea. Four patients, six patients, eight patients, just not having any idea of the texture of the work. And that's really what I wanted to get across. Right. Right. And you've written in your New York Times column and in other articles I've written by you, of which there are many, on CNN, New York Times, the Pittsburgh Gazette, I think it's believed. That, yeah. It's yeah. Yeah. So you've written about how the media and the general public don't really understand what we actually do. And that's true. I've written and talked about it too a lot. And I think other nurses do who want people to understand, like Suzanne Gordon and Bernice Baresh. They wrote that wonderful book um, several years ago that's on my bookshelf all the time. Mm -hmm. So that's from silence to voice, right? What nurses need to know and communicate to the media. So that's a wonderful book. And it just seems like... Do you feel like maybe a little tiny bit the media and the public are starting to understand what we do a teeny bit more during COVID? Yes, I do think so. And I, I think okay. that is the only silver lining for nursing in COVID or from COVID because suddenly people understand, oh, wait, it's not the doctor who's adjusting the ventilator in the ICU and turning up and down the IV pumps that are kept in the hallway and checking the vitals and looking in on the patient. It's the nurse who's doing all that. And I hate to use a military metaphor because I I don't think it's great for a lot of reasons, but if the doctor is the officer, then the Mm -hmm. nurse is the grunt on the ground. It's interesting when people make war movies, that's who they show, right? They show those frontline soldiers. That's true. Good point. Yeah. With the officers like looking at their maps and figuring things out. And yet in healthcare, the doctors are the ones who are seen as doing everything. And so much of that actual work Mm -hmm. gets done by nurses. That's a very, very good point. Now, The Shift is an incredible book. I read it when it first came out. It's been on my shelf with your other book for critical care for a number of years. And do you have a passage that you're willing to read from The Shift just to give folks a little taste of the book in your voice? Because I think hearing it in your voice is, is one of the most important ways to hear it the book from a book from any author and I'd love for you to read something. Yes. And I, normally I read something that's dramatic that really gets at the, the human cost of what's going on, but because of what everyone's going through with COVID, mm-hmm. I decided to read something that's short, a little bit different and people will understand once I read it. Great. Go for it. The very start of the shift, I've just picked up my assignment. And usually we have four, but I only have three. Okay. The difference between three and four patients is huge. Three to four is supposed to be a standard load. And that usually ends up being four. 
but there are no official rules about how many patients we can have. If we're working short-staffed, four patients will jump to five, and night shift occasionally has six each. There are stem cell transplant units, which is what I was working on, where each nurse covers only two patients, the ideal level of care for our sickest people. With four patients, they sometimes because become human to-do lists, and I could get a fourth any time, transfer from intensive care and admission from the emergency department. Someone with a new diagnosis of leukemia jerked out of his normal life and pulled unwilling into the world of the hospital. This unknown fourth patient feels like a vulture perching on my shoulder, hungry to scavenge my peace of mind, so I try not to think about it. Three allows me to treat my patients as people. Instead of rushing from room to room, I can move at a human pace and also be on top of everything going on with them, talking to worried family members who call, knowing the results of recent scans and tests so that I can answer questions knowledgeably, tuning in to iffy vital signs, or pushing a physician to come up with an anti-nausea regimen for a patient who spent two solid days vomiting. Hospital administrators with their eyes on the bottom line seem to think that nurses can stretch infinitely like rubber bands. The fewer the number of nurses, the lower the labor costs for the hospital. But if I give care a numerical value represented by TLC, while P stands for number of patients and RN for each individual nurse, then RN over P equals TLC. And let me explain that a little bit. It's a simple fraction communicating the idea that the more patients every nurse has, the more she or he is sliced up into being able to provide smaller and smaller amounts of TLC or tender loving care. The more patients an individual nurse cares for, the smaller the amount of TLC per patient. More significantly, research on staffing levels has made it pretty clear that the more patients a nurse has above a certain number, the number itself depends on the patient population and how sick the patients are, the larger the likelihood a patient will die who wouldn't have otherwise. In other words, nurse-to-patient ratios aren't just about patients feeling cared for, they're also about fragile people staying alive. Of course, administrators have their own different formula with KVIs, key volume indicators, and FTEs, full-time employees. My eyes glaze over when I try to understand healthcare economics from a manager's point of view. I say, put the patient at the center and figure out the money from there. Mm, Oh my gosh. There must be a nurse out there listening to you reading this and just either shaking his or her head or nodding his or her head or both at the same time, or just closing their eyes and just taking a deep breath because this the rubber band overstretched, the vulture image that you used the metaphor early on, and then going into that the little equation you just talked about of, of um, RN over P equaling TLC. That's brilliant. And that that's a pretty universal experience, don't you think, especially in acute care? Yes. Yes. 
Yeah. And tell me in the acute care realm, you said you were doing what, what did you spend a lot of your time doing? What kinds of patients were you working with most of the time? Right. Oncology patients, but leukemia, lymphoma. So um, giving chemotherapy, which you have to have classes to know how to do it, but then also doing um, stem cell transplants, what used to be called, and still are actually in a lot of places called bone marrow transplants, even right. though it's not, it's not real. It's not actually bone marrow anymore. It's harvested mm-hmm. stem cells. So we would bring people in and try to cure their leukemia. Um, and then if it came back, we would bring them in again and basically obliterate their bone marrow with chemo. Exactly. And then give them a new immune system with these new stem cells. Yeah. They're like starting as if they were just born in a way. Yes. And get all their vaccines again, everything. Yeah. (laughs) It's incredible. So that is highly skilled work, Teresa. And you have written about, just to kind of dovetail on this with some of your other writing, you've written about the concept of old nursing versus new nursing. And you expounded on this in an issue in American Nurse, and there'll be a link in the show notes. And then for the, the journal, you, the American Nurse Journal, you actually wrote, a, or the American Journal of Nursing, you wrote a much deeper article going into this. So from the point of view of being such a highly skilled person who took the classes and learned how to give chemo and learned how to take care of people with zero immune system, right? Mm-hmm. How does that compare to the old view of nursing of being modest, hardworking, and subservient? So where where's the cognitive dissonance for you here? Yeah, uh, what a great question. You can't be a, a good nurse while being subservient. I absolutely believe that. Um, I mean, modesty, I guess, is okay. And what was the third one I said? You said modest, hardworking, and subservient. Yes, you do need to be hardworking. But uh, in the history of nursing and what I think of as old nursing, nurses were always underpaid. And mm-hmm. uh, we're expected to work these incredible hours. I mean, basically, we've always, in the United States at least, operated on a model where the hospital wants to have as few nurses as possible. You know, I'm generalizing, right? This sure, of course. Wants yeah. to have yeah. as few nurses as possible because then they have the lowest labor costs mm-hmm. that they can. And so historically, they resorted to all kinds of things, having students who students who weren't really trained and weren't being taught, um, pulling in women who did laundry, um, basically sort of throwing anyone into that role and uh, just being incredibly rigid about the rules and the expectations and not just at work, but how they live their lives, when they could go out even. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's almost like being a nun, right? <laughs> it did have a very nun-like visage back in the, I guess it was the 19th century, I guess, Victorian times maybe. And there were women who said, this work is harder than the work I did when I was working in the laundry and I'm getting paid less. Mm-hmm. And 
uh, basically the people managing me are really nasty and right. Why stay in this job? Exactly. And there's this whole notion of, um, uh, what I've talked about and others have talked about of being handmaidens to physicians. And that has changed to a large extent, right? They're, the patriarchal structure has been taken apart to some extent. And we have more female doctors, of course, and a preponderance of female medical students and interns and residents right now, I believe, in 2020. But how do you feel? Has, has it changed enough in your viewpoint? I do not think it has changed enough. I, okay. I think a lot of the overt sexism is obviously gone. The days of the doctors who throw things, I think it still happens. And in fact, I was on the floor once when one of our doctors threw a chart, um, You know, which I would just like to point out, this is not behavior we would tolerate in a five-year-old. Not particularly. So why we accept it from a grown man with an advanced degree, I, I can't answer that question. But um, I think, you know, those kinds of doctors are a dying breed. And when I talk to interns and residents now and fellows, they are so much more knowledgeable about what nurses do. They see the value of nurses, but there's still not that communication. Mm-hmm. Um, so I taught at University of Pittsburgh this past year, and we were on an ortho floor, um, which was not a great fit for me, you know, steep learning curve, which I like, mm-hmm. but the doctors there were kind, encouraging, but they never talked with the nurses. And the nurses, you know, would call if they needed something, but there was no communication. And this floor was doing bedside shift report, which you know what that is, right? Where the oh, yes. job, um, yeah. was, it's the big new thing, right? Yeah. We do it right at the bedside, not in some room locked away somewhere. Right. But the, so this was the, the nurse going off shift would report to the nurse coming on shift in the room, right? which I definitely see the value of, but I what I thought would have been great is if shift report was done with the doctor there um, because still the communication between the nurses and the doctors was almost non-existent unless something came up. Yeah, that's problematic. That's very problematic. Nurses talk about that a lot. And communication's an issue. That's why my friends Candy Campbell and Beth Boynton are involved in medical improv. And Alan Alda and his Alda Center for Communication Science does medical improv with folks. Yeah, he has a great podcast as well about communication called Clear and Vivid. And so communication's important. And my, my friend, Dr. Ted O'Connell at UCSF, he's been on my show several times and he teaches out in the Bay Area, teaches medical residents and, and works with the fellows and the, the medical students. And he and I talked about this, what seems like a pie in the sky idea of nursing students and medical students having some instruction together. Wouldn't that be pretty awesome? Yeah. 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 
Wouldn't that be a really interesting model? And we've talked about how could we actually make that happen? So, you know, maybe, maybe we'll pull you in someday and try to figure out how to do that. But love it. Yeah. Yeah. So in this context, let's, if you don't mind, if we switch over a little bit to this notion of, of being a writer, being a public speaker, being a public figure or thought leader, like you and I both are, we're both public figures and we write about nursing, we write about healthcare and medicine. So you've written some articles, one specific one from April of 2020 about why hospitals don't want nurses and doctors speaking out, you know, out to the public and especially to the media. And you wrote about it in the context of COVID, but you've also brought in other contexts. So you have a personal experience or slash professional experience around that as well as a writer. So would you like to reflect on that a little bit? And what does it mean when we speak out or when the public and the media hear directly from us? That is another really great question because my first ever column in the New York Times, which was over a decade ago now, um, got this, it was in the Science Times section, got this tremendous amount of attention that I never expected. And the contract for my first book for critical care came from that article. So I see. in that sense, I was very lucky. Uh, but also what I heard from people is this is a voice we never hear, the voice of a bedside nurse. And there was a real sense of excitement and wow, there's a whole trove of stories here that it would be you know, great to get a taste of them. So that was wonderful. And I kept writing for the Times. And I, I do admit I was naive because I knew there were doctors writing all the time. And uh, so I thought, well, what's the difference? Um, but even right away, there were people on the New York Times website who would troll me in the comments section about you're violating HIPAA and why is this mm-hmm. nurse allowed to tell these stories? And mm-hmm. um, even other nurses who would say, you know, nursing students are very upset about what you're doing. They feel like you're not respecting the privacy between nurse and patient. And I, I, re- I didn't expect any of that at all. So that was my first entree into what I think of as the pushback. And it's interesting. Nobody does that anymore. Like, <laughs> Not particularly. No. Unless you're Joy Bihar on The View. Right. But Yeah. That's another conversation. But that, yeah. All those trolls found someone else to torment. Um, and it, it seems like the idea of nurses speaking out is now mm-hmm. more in the same category as doctors doing that than just the sort of outlier kind of that's good that's a good thing but then at my workplace i always explain it as they liked me until they didn't um Mm -hmm. and i i started having a series of negotiations if you could call it that with the chief nursing officer and then the next thing i know there's a lawyer from corporate there and there was clearly some problem, but they would never say, you know, like, well, what if this happened? And I would say, well, are we talking about something theoretical or something that is happening? Mm -hmm. 
Right. And it was, it was very stressful. And then I finally got cold called into a meeting and they just gave me this contract that said, if I write or speak again, I will be fired. And I said, I see. Thank you. And I left the meeting. <laughs> and you left the employee of that employer. Yeah. yeah. And then I yeah. let them know that I would be resigning my position. But I was very lucky to have a, a close friend who's an employment lawyer who'd been advising me. And I was just going to say, I'm resigning my position. You know, this is untenable, whatever. And she said, Teresa, if you're resigning, you need to tell them why. Mm-hmm. And really encouraged me to do that, which I really, really appreciated um, because it was, it was hard. It was very, very hard. Um, and they made it personal and just you know, made it sound like I was such a terrible part of the hospital and of the program, even though they featured me in a magazine and, you know, it's, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. So. Yeah. They didn't want their reputation tarnished. They didn't want any way their They didn't want their financial bottom line to be impacted and their reputation. And so of course they, they wanted to silence you. And that's where we get to that notion of the gag order. Right. And when we come back from a quick break, I want to talk a little bit about the gag order in, especially in the, in the context of COVID-19 and what's happening in the world right now in 2020. And also just talk a little bit about how you and I both see just the word just as a four letter word when we're talking about ourselves and other nurses. So we'll be right back for the second half of episode 286. So now we're going to take a pause for the cause for just a moment. Please consider becoming a patron of The Nurse Keith Show, just like other awesome listeners who value the show so much that they want to give just a little bit each month to support the work we're doing here. When you pledge, you not only get the satisfaction of helping produce and support The Nurse Keith Show, you also get some pretty cool premiums and gifts from yours truly. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash Nurse Keith to read all about it. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash Nurse Keith. And if you know someone who could benefit from career coaching with me, please consider referring them. And if they become a paying client, you'll receive credit for an hour of coaching with me. And there's no expiration date on that credit, so you can keep it in your back pocket until you need it most. And remember that you can refer as many people as you like and continue to earn those coaching credits. What an incredible deal. And please head over to nursekeith.com and sign up for my newsletter, which comes out regularly and brings you supportive messages, updates from my blog and my podcast, resources, and all sorts of other stuff. Remember, nursekeith.com, sign up for that newsletter, and you'll also get a free download from me as my gift to you. Anyway, those are my sincere asks today. So now, Let's dig back into today's topic without further ado. And welcome back to the second half of the episode. Remember the show notes where it be at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 286. We're with Teresa Brown. 
New York Times bestselling author and columnist who has been on CNN, has been all over the media for more than a decade now, and is a leading a, a leading nurse out there in the media speaking about issues. And before the break, Teresa, we were talking about gag orders and how you left the employee of a hospital because they basically were shutting you down in terms of writing anything out there in the world. And we've touched on this concept of old nursing versus new nursing and the ways in which that is thankfully changing over time. So when it comes to gag orders and it comes to hospitals not wanting nurses and doctors to speak out, I'm seeing in these days of COVID-19 that there's a lot of speaking out happening right now. And what do you see and what do you hear? And how do you feel about what's happening out there in the world with doctors and nurses and others in the media really telling it like it is? Yeah, I do see that they're speaking out. And I know that there were some doctors and nurses who got fired for speaking out who then got their jobs back. Yes, I've heard some of those reports. Yeah, so that's hopeful. But still, I also heard from people after that column came out saying, oh, yes, we're working under a gag order and we're all afraid to say anything. And in the column, one point I made was in addition to being afraid of COVID, now nurses and doctors are afraid of hospital administrators Mm -hmm. as well. Exactly. Um, So we do hear and see a lot more speaking out, which is wonderful. Um, But there is also a sense of fear I get. And probably a lot of it, if I'm honest, really comes down to which hospital you work in, right? Which hospital system. Mm -hmm. Right. Is the system more open-minded or do they, they think we can take the heat or um, is it okay with them if people are saying, hey, we don't have enough PPE? And the thing I really didn't understand about the gag orders is that no one had enough personal protective equipment, although it sounds like some places actually did or they used it better. Some were doing better than others, especially in March and April. Right. Yeah, it's true. Right. Right. But a lot of places didn't have enough equipment. I know people saw the, the images of nurses wearing garbage bags because mm-hmm. they didn't have the right kind of protective equipment. Right. Or neighborhood organizations or private citizens sewing masks for nurses and delivering them to hospitals and clinics around the country in the 21st century United States. Right. Yeah, I mean, we even we found some extra N95 masks we bought for a home improvement project when you could only buy, you know, a box full. Right. Took them to our local ER, thinking this is like giving them gold, rather than like you thinking, you know, these masks cost a dollar or less, and we should just have more of them. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So I think we've we've had both. We've had people having the courage of their convictions and saying, hey, we need better work environments. And we've had people too scared to do that. 
Absolutely. And I've seen interviews with nurses on CNN and MSNBC and some of the leaders of the bigger nursing organizations or nursing unions. So they have been speaking out, which is great. And man, I have seen some short videos on the New York Times website and I use the app. I subscribe to New York Times and some incredible insider videos where where journalists from the New York Times are there with a a camera person doing video and doing deep interviews, embedded interviews within these COVID units. And it's, I mean, it's pretty stark and pretty incredible. And that level of insight and transparency of what's actually happening out there is, I think is unprecedented. So like you said, very early on here in the conversation is that at this time, there's a new way of looking at healthcare and we're, we're seeing it through different eyes and things are a little more stark because this conversation, this global conversation is, is pretty existential, don't you think? In a, yes, in a way. And then also very physical. Well, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, some people emailed me and said I, they hated these stories that patients were dying alone because actually Mm -hmm. they weren't. They were dying without family members. Yes. The hospitals where I heard from people, a nurse would always stay with a dying patient. There would be a nurse Mm -hmm. with that person when their life ended. Yeah. In the best case scenario, of course. Right. Ah, beautiful doesn't really cover it. I mean, that is that is the soul of nursing in a way, right? Isn't it? Uh, that yeah. else is going yeah. on. It's part of our role to give an acknowledgement that someone's time on earth is ending and they need a hand to hold in, in mm-hmm. that moment. Yeah. And you've been a hospice nurse. I've been a hospice nurse. And you wrote an article about being okay with dying, even in the context of, of um, COVID-19. And I'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. It's a beautiful Thank article you. about being okay that death happens. And, you know, I have spoken to nurses who work in ICUs around the country and doing, you know, FaceTime calls on iPads with family Mm -hmm. who can't come in. And my dad died in the hospital on his 90th birthday on May 5th of this year. And he didn't have COVID. He had other things going on, but he died in the hospital without family. And my brother and, and my dad's wife were able to talk with him, even though he was, his dementia was quite advanced, but they still got to see his face and he got to hear their voices, you know, in those final hours before he died. So that's, talk about existential. I mean, yes. that's it's as stark as you can get in terms of a family needing to connect and a nurse facilitating that connection, don't you think? Yes, that's right. And in fact, yeah, my idea of new nursing is, yes, these existential points, which nurses have always been seen as doing but then at the same time, you have this mind that can be shuffling and prioritizing. When I just imagine that nurse sitting there must be like flipping through like a whole list of things. 
um, that they have to do absolutely to do, but but in that moment they are setting that list aside. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're right; those are very existential questions, and and they are. And to have them happen, you have to have that nuts and bolts. You have to have support for nurses doing that. You have to have mm-hmm. people understanding that it's important and. Yeah. And that the other tasks still get done. And that brings me to an article you wrote in the New York times on March 25th, 2020 about um, you had a simple plan for nursing and medical students to receive Basically, you were saying provisional licenses so that they could work in non-COVID units to help do the things that would free the nurses and others to do the other stuff that really needed to get done. So do you think that has actually happened anywhere? Has any hospital or any, actually would be a state board, allowed that to happen during COVID? There were some states that that we're doing that. And now I can't remember which ones they were. Because mm-hmm. I think when I wrote that, we were all thinking very hopefully, right? We that, were. Oh, this mm-hmm. is just going to be a few months, maybe into the summer. And yeah. um, so I thought this will get us, this will get everyone to the surge, you know, it would help. And mm-hmm. now that we're looking at a much longer uh, duration of COVID in the U.S. The goal now is to keep hospitals from surging. Exactly, like they are in Houston this week right now. So now right, right, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, the real answer to your question is I kind of stopped paying attention. I hate to admit it. I understand. Yeah. It was it was meant to be a, a stopgap, and then mm-hmm. it became clear that we needed something more than that. But I but I definitely think it would it could still be a good idea because even for junior medical junior nursing students, I don't know if they're going to be able to do clinicals. I mean, senior nursing students this year they were juniors last year. I'm yeah, right. Able to do their final clinicals. So that remains to be seen and we'll see how they do getting out of school and if they're going to have the support to, to succeed. Ted O'Connell talked about that on one of the episodes he was on my show about how do we make sure these folks get what they need because they've been robbed by the pandemic in the situation of some of their education. So we need to make sure they have support and we, cause we want them to succeed cause we need them. Um, So as we wind down, I just wanted to touch on the fact that, you know, you've written for the Times, you've written these two wonderful books that are bestsellers and widely acclaimed. You've been on Hardball, Fresh Air, Talk of the Nation, 2020. So you've been out there in the world doing this and representing us. And thank you so much for representing. And you have a PhD in English from the University of Chicago, and you taught English at Tufts for a few years before you had kids. And do you feel like that PhD has in English has given you a little leg up in terms of being able to bring a literary voice to the nursing literature and the nursing world? 
I, I think somewhat, yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think having that background is helpful. And it's also just often the way I think about things, I sort of think in terms of stories and it's mm-hmm. sort of, uh, you know, a lot of what makes a successful column is about taste or having a sense of what's the issue that's embedded in this story. Yeah, the deeper part. Yeah, and so definitely I think my background in English was very helpful in that way. But the other way it was very helpful was completely unexpected to me, which is at that time I was reading a lot of feminist theory and post-colonial theory, so lots of writing about hierarchies and who's allowed to speak and who's not allowed to speak and in what contexts. And I had no idea when I came into nursing and, and really even started working in the hospital because nursing school doesn't really prepare you for this. But the not particularly. It's completely like that. You know, the mm-hmm. hospital is so hierarchical and there are so many unspoken rules about who can talk to whom. And, um, you know, it's, and, I, and I think it was just much easier for me to see that was going on as a power structure, mm-hmm. not that it was some kind of absolute set of rules about I really shouldn't be speaking. And also because I was older and because I had taught college, I wasn't as afraid to speak. Right. So you were seeing it through the lens of third wave feminism and your, your studies in literature and all the other pieces that make you who you are. Yes. Yeah. And I love that. And that's why when I told people I was having you on the show this, this month, I was saying, you know, I'm having one of the greatest living nurse writers on the Nurse Keith show. <laughs> because you bring a certain type of voice to this that many others aspire to, myself included. And the PhD is just a piece of it. And I know you're who you are for many reasons, but I think that gives you this certain something in terms of, as a literary figure in nursing that I really admire and, and value greatly. Um, sure. And speaking of words, as we wind down here, just one last comment and question. You've written about the word just, that there's no more just a nurse. And I've done a podcast and written about how just is a four-letter word in the nursing nomenclature right? Even for a CNA, you don't say I'm just a CNA. You say, I'm a CNA. I help people. I work with people directly. So tell me just a little bit of your feelings about this word just, and we'll have a link to this My American Nurse article that you wrote. Yeah, it's uh, such a way for nurses to put ourselves down. Mm-hmm. I'm, um, and and I ended up writing about it because of this Miss America contestant who was a nurse and right. for her entertainment, what do they call it? Talent. Her talent <laughs> um, piece. Right. Yes. yes. Right. Out dressed in scrubs with a stethoscope around her neck and told a story about taking care of a patient who would ask her all these questions. And she would say, I don't know. I'm just a nurse. I'm just a nurse. I'm just a nurse. Mm-hmm. And then the last day he said, you'll never be just a nurse because you're my nurse. That's right which was lovely. But also what that story speaks to is her even, even though obviously she was very proud of being a nurse and I thought she was a great representative of nursing. But in those moments, 
she wasn't owning what she did. Well, I don't know the answer to that, but I could find out. Yeah, she was diminishing her value. Yes, and we are so good at that as a profession, and that's bringing it back to something you asked me earlier. That's what my idea of new nursing is based on, that we see our value. We expect to be paid for our time. If we work through lunch, we say, yes, you need to pay me for that half hour. Mm -hmm. If I every day, then we get paid every single day, that we value ourselves and what we do. And I think often, not often, sometimes in nursing, the mistake will be made of comparing nurses to doctors. But then the flip side of that is the just a nurse. I don't compare myself to a doctor. I'm not a doctor. I didn't want to be a doctor. Nor did I. I have right. a job and it's super, super important. And it needs to be honored and valued all on its own for what it is. Well said. Very well said. So, wow, we could talk for a long time, or I could speak with you for a long time. So, one last question is how are you and your family doing in terms of pandemic? You all been doing okay in Pittsburgh and you all feel safe there and things are things are fairly yeah. stable? Um, our county has had a big spike in cases in the mm-hmm. past week, so that's a bit distressing. Mm-hmm. But my husband's able to work at home. I'm writing at home, so that's been okay. And actually, our daughters attend University of Pittsburgh, so they're staying in their apartment, but we see them. They're really our, our social life. Yeah, right. um, I understand. So this is, yeah. you know, the world's smallest silver lining is we have actually seen them a lot more this summer than we probably would have without COVID. Yeah. There's, there are little tiny, tiny silver linings. And do you have anything in the works that you're, you're at liberty to discuss, like a book or project you're working on? If not, it's okay. Yes. I'm actually, when I said I'm writing at home, I'm finishing up my third book, uh, which is about what Teresa the nurse learned from Teresa the patient. Wow. Okay. Two and a half years ago, I was diagnosed with breast cancer and I'm okay, but it's, uh, yeah, we don't call it the big C for nothing. (laughs) No, no. Oh, I'm so sorry. And I'm glad you're okay. And I look forward to reading because you're such an incredible writer, I look forward to reading it. And if you would do me the honor of coming back on the show later this year, once it comes out. Yeah. Yeah. That would be wonderful. So we'll be in touch. And do you have one, any last thoughts for our audience who are preponderance of nurses? Is there anything you want to say to them in terms of how to value themselves out there in the world and be not be just a nurse. Yeah, I would say I know the job is hard and with COVID mm-hmm. it's scary and terrifying and trying to remember that every single day there's somebody you will have given hope. There has somebody you will have given relief. Mm-hmm. There is somebody you will have comforted, you will have fought for. It's so hard for us often to see the good we do, 
but the good is always there. So look for your own goodness, Mm. I would say. Thank you, Teresa. That's a beautiful message. I'm so glad I asked that question. So thank you so much and blessings on you and your family and your your community. And I can't wait to have you back when that new book is ready, ready to ready for prime time. Thank you. It will be fun. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nurse Keith Show with my friend and colleague, Teresa Brown. And remember, the show notes will be at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 286 with links to all of the articles we referenced at the New York Times, CNN, Journal of American Nursing, etc. I hope you feel uplifted and empowered from this episode. And I encourage you to take inspired action every day in the interest of your personal and professional satisfaction, happiness, and wellness. And if you need personalized holistic career coaching, please get in touch with me at Nurse Keith Tom. Please get in touch with me at nursekeith.com. Mention the show and you can get 10% off your first coaching package. And head over to nursekeith.com to the resources section where you'll find resume templates and advice from Amanda Guarnier of the Resume RX, jobs from Trusted Health, Incredible Health, and ZipRecruiter, and much more for you. The Nurse Keith Show is a member of Ars Longa Media, a collaborative network of podcasts, media entities, and very soon musical artists and others whose aim is to add a humanistic touch to professional education, educate the public from a scientifically informed perspective, and improve lives by partnering to address social ills, including the stigmatization of mental illness and the rising epidemic of substance use disorders. Check out Ars Longa at arslonga.media. That's arslonga.media. The Nurse Keith Show is adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting. Mark Cappy Spiesen is our stalwart social media ringmaster. I'm grateful to Rob and Mark for keeping the wheels turning in the right direction. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch, stay safe. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico, and the wonderful Teresa Brown saying goodbye from Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. Thank you so much, Teresa. And we will catch everybody on the flip side.